all, and welcome to episode 49 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by my host, Kyle Klachenko. Today we have on a guest uh, of many faces. This guest was a lawyer, or as he'd be termed in his home country, a barrister, uh, and practiced and studied law for some time. In fact, he practiced law for 10 years. Uh, before completing his master's and starting to change his focus to uh, advocating for more nutritional awareness and educating himself in nutritional sciences and is in fact the same university where he received his master's now proceeding with his PhD. Uh, Our guest is known as Alan Flanagan aka the nutritional advocate. Alan thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me guys glad we got around to doing this. I know, I know. Sometimes, and, and and not that the audience much cares, but if ever you want to start a podcast and you are organizing podcast times around daylight savings time, just know that, that doesn't happen equally across the country, we have learned, or at least have been reminded. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had completely forgotten that daylight savings occurred at different points across the globe. <laughs> and, I'm, and I study chronobiology, so... <laughs> So, Alan, do you mind just right off the bat, just letting the audience know, kind of in your own words, what led you from changing uh, careers from law to one that has you down this path of nutritional studies? Yeah, um, nutrition was always was always a big hobby interest of mine. the, the, The way that someone might read, you know fiction in their spare time or history and and it was something that i gravitated naturally towards science as a means of of trying to reconcile some of the info that i was getting online um i found myself becoming a pubmed warrior and that just kind of was a process i realized i was spending a lot of time on so i wanted to do some formal education completely out of interest at the start i thought that i would do a do an msc in nutrition science you know while working as a barrister in in ireland which is what i did but i always kind of figured this would be my hobby thing and i would do education on the side of my career and over the course of the msc that really changed for me and i found myself more and more drawn into the research the potential to pursue a career in academia and and that kind of accelerated then last year and I really made the decision that if I had an opportunity to pursue a PhD then I would transition out of law and and jump at that opportunity and that opportunity presented itself in September. Um, I was keen to stay at the University of Surrey where I'd done my my MSc for a number of reasons. One, it has one of the best nutrition science departments this side of the world. It also has an amazing chronobiology department, and I have an interest in in chrononutrition. Um, And also, as somewhere that I had done my MSc and kind of proven myself a little bit, uh, I needed an institution that kind of would back that in the, the sense that I was coming from a non-traditional background. I was not coming from a science background. So I needed people, you know, at the uni that were like, well, he's not an idiot. <laughs> so, you know, we, we don't mind putting in applications on this kid's behalf because we, we, we think he can do the work. So for all those reasons, 
you know, wanted to stay there. The opportunity arose to stay there. And now here I am, um, you know, uh, as you said, pursuing a PhD. PhDs are four years in the UK. Um, so sinking into the process and very much now committed to hopefully a career in, in research and academia. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it, well, it's, it's very applaudable. And, and in doing some, some further research on you, Alan, I think you were, through some website, they titled it A Day in the Life of Alan Flanagan. And the personal motto, I was totally not surprised that it was go always a little further. And, and I don't know if from law to a master's to a PhD is just a little bit, but uh, definitely uh, inspiring to say the least. That was the uh, Go Waves website. <laughs> uh, is that true? I hopefully you weren't misquoted or like they didn't. No, just no, it. that's true. Oh, so... Uh, I a friend here who's a, 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 a doctor in the UK, but is very big on health technology. Um, and so he's involved in that O-Waves app, which is, I guess they're developing it to be something that helps you kind of plan your day according to your kind of biological rhythms. And uh, I did a podcast episode with them. And as part of that, they kind of had this thing where it was really like, if you could plan your day to the minute, you know, how would it look like? And and then part of it was, you know, some bits about yourself and that wow. phrase, um, always go a little further is kind of almost a paraphrase from when I was a kid, I was really into military history and I read a lot of books about the SAS um, and one of their mottos, that's a paraphrase of one of their mottos about always going a little further and it's just stuck with me. Hmm. And well, and to kind of throw uh, another quote in the mix, because I think this would perhaps be a nice bridge into our first topic, which will be involving you know, scientific uh, literature or scientific literacy. I think they're kind of hand in hand uh, at, at this point, and perhaps some obstacles that, that we might encounter on a more global scale with challenges to hunger and obesity, or mm. we uh, attack these macro level uh ideas i i noted that you posted on your social media a quote from occam's barber yeah. and it's the, the quote to me uh, speaks to someone who understandably came from a, a law background and has this and i, I really don't know what a a lawyer's purpose is uh, or, or what the mission of a lawyer would be from a lawyer's own, own mouth, but it seems like it has translated well for you into nutrition in a field where perhaps at the time you felt like there wasn't a lot of uh, information rooted in some evidence. And, and the quote you had <clears throat> shared was, you are completely entitled to opinions that are not supported by evidence, but the moment you spread that opinion as fact, you are a liar. And if you spread it as fact, knowing it is not supported by evidence, you are both a liar and a fraud. So I, I can hear the yeah. almost like a lawyer type tone in there as well, as someone like up on the stand uh, being uh, spoken down to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 very, it's real stuff, you know? It is. It, that's, it's possibly my, my favorite quote for where we're at right now, particularly in nutrition, where there is a lot of belief system based thinking. People have opinions that are completely unsubstantiated by, by fact. 
they are willing to believe in someone else's opinions based on nothing more than their like of that person or that paradigm. And because of social media and the unprecedented access we have to information, people are able to spread unfactual information as fact uh, willingly, often for commercial gain, um, at the expense of people who will believe in this. Um, And there's been some really problematic examples of this recently. I'm not sure if you are aware of um, a recent uh, court case in the States where this individual who had a, a, what he called, quote, cancer ranch uh, in Florida, Mm -hmm. where he was giving people alkaline diets um, and people died. And so he, I think, I think he's been, I think it was something like 450 million. It was an enormous sum of money that he had a judgment against him to, to repay to families. And I think he's been imprisoned. And, and, and thankfully that step has, has, has taken. But we also have people like, for example, the medical medium who is recommending people consume celery juice for autoimmune conditions. This is dangerous information. And people are willing to believe it. And I think we're in a really troubled waters in this post-truth era that we're entered into because it's not just post-truth, it's also anti-intellectual. So if you try and combat this information at the level of science or facts, you just get dismissed. No one's interested in your science or your facts. It's like that South Park episode, you know, Mr. Scientist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is where we're at right now. And it's, 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 it's a tricky position to be in. But what I, what I fundamentally, what I mean by that quote is, you know, people are entitled to their opinions. I have absolutely no problem with someone believing celery juice will cure their autoimmune disease as long as they don't present that as fact and push it to the wider world as a fact and represent it in a way that others may buy into so Mm. it's 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 something that people are entitled to their beliefs but once they start trying to impose that elsewhere then i think we're we're entitled as a science community to be a bit more vocal and to be a bit more forthright in, in putting it down. And that's kind of why I stepped into trying to have a, a voice, certainly in the social media space, is because I feel we are lacking in, in effective science communication. But within that, we also deal with the traditional kind of imposter syndrome and the reserved nature of of science and academia where even if people see information that they perceive as incorrect or potentially dangerous they're also Mm. not willing to to come out and and hit it you know kind of with a hammer and i guess that's just one place where my legal background has actually been beneficial i'm i'm not a medical professional by training i'm not a dietitian by training i don't have these kind of um you know, uh, regulatory bodies to, to, to potentially be kind of afraid of slash mindful of, or, you know, worried that my voice would be silenced. So um, I feel quite independent in this space. And I feel like there is a, a duty on us that can 
to to do and you know it's kind of that case of if you can you must and and that's kind of the way that I've approached these conversations is if if you if you were in a position to to stamp hard on this stuff then I think we have to Alan have you um do you listen to the you are not so smart podcast have you heard of that no (laughs) um so list (laughs) yeah so it's essentially it's um I mean, I would just say it's a podcast about uh, psychology and he goes over a lot of really awesome ideas uh, like tribalism and uh, like belief change um, across like, uh, like just how people's beliefs change very quickly. Um, But he had a really good podcast talking about a similar idea um, around uh, like anti-vaxxers and um, how it's a very <clears throat> similar problem that's happening in nutrition where there's these people who are saying, and a lot of celebrities who had a lot of um, uh, popularity that were like saying that, oh, well, vaccinations don't really work. There's all these issues with them, da, 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 da. But all the research is saying that they're totally fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this guy that he was interviewing on the podcast was the leading researcher and ended up getting into a lot of arguments or being on TV shows, talking uh, 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 against these people. And uh, just like what he's learned throughout the last 10 years of trying to, because at first he he thought, oh, if I just put out the facts, people will will follow it. Um, But then he realized over time that he can't do that. No one's really, really listening to that. So he had to kind of take more of a, um, uh, more of like look almost like a celebrity mm. to get people to listen and, and talk like them. And it was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is very much, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently because I'm quite interested in classical rhetoric. Like how do you convince people <laughs> in an mm. argument or, or in a debate? Um, and I do think that we need to really think harder about the rhetoric that we use to, to try and, to try and reach people. And it certainly is not facts. Um, so it's how do we take what the facts are and turn it into something a bit more emotive, a bit more Mm -hmm. even of a narrative, just something that will communicate what the facts are, but in a way, in a, you know, using a rhetorical device that people will actually be like, Oh, okay. (laughs) And, and, and that's really hard. I haven't, I haven't quite worked my way through that and, and, and maybe, kind of decided what type of language we need to use and how we need to address it but i'm scheming in the background <laughs> trying yeah. to figure it out so alan i i heard you on another podcast say something that i really um i really thought to be powerful and it, it helped me kind of draw parallels to training sciences and where people might go wrong but you mentioned how people sometimes play with nutritional sciences or at least the uh, general public's ability to digest such. Uh, they play this stupid card that like, mm. come on, you have to know that, that yeah. veggies are good for you. And you made the, the point you said, I think if you took, I don't know if you mentioned someone without a home or, or someone just a random person on the street, even if someone in hunger 
and said, hey, do you think that fruits and vegetables are good for you? Undoubtedly, they would say yes. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, there's this perhaps meddling of these superfluous details almost at the top. Uh, You kind of have this dichotomy where I think like cognitively we we know Mm -hmm. the quote unquote like good foods, the whole foods, the the ones that aren't as calorie dense or or processed. And it it made me think of similar challenges in training where if I ask someone, how do you think you improve strength? I think anyone, even if they hadn't stepped foot in the gym, would maybe ascertain that you have to just lift things like Mm -hmm. heavily or heavy things to get strong. Um, but then you, right, you go through your Instagram feed and, and you have all of this superfluous nonsense, like uh, corrective exercises and uh, quick uh, one rep max uh, improvements and uh, biomechanical fixes, what have you. Do, you. do you see those as being somewhat similar? Am I, am I kind of speaking to something that is yeah. the training yeah. side with the nutrition side? Yeah, it, it, because there is a narrative certainly when it comes to nutrition that the disconnect uh, between people's health at a population level is somehow to do with education Um, and I I reject that not only is it not supported evidentially I just don't think anymore it's morally sustainable as an argument to say and the point I made and you're right on that podcast was if you took 10 people um and line them up against a wall and said you know what what constitutes a healthy diet you know eight certainly are probably going to say fruits and eating fruits and vegetables are good for you and the point there is we we have a narrative that you know oh people need to know what's 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 good for them and if we just tell them they can make that choice but that actually by reducing it to that level um assumes that there are no barriers to implementing that knowledge so the issue is not lack of knowledge the issue is not solved by telling people fruits and vegetables are good for them we have dietary guidelines that have been saying the same thing for 40 years they're not wrong there's just a lack of applicability to them in the real world um and so you know, and you could, you know, you can, you can, you can take the same kind of analogy for for strength training as well, right? I mean, if you have a basketball player who's six foot eight, I mean, the squat might be the best exercise in the world for lower body strength, but it's probably not going to suit that particular athlete that well. Mm-hmm. So it's the disconnect between, well, what do we know to be true generally, and then what's actually at play on the ground um, for an individual or for a population. So mm-hmm. what we know to be true about diet and health is largely uncontroversial at this point. People make it controversial because they have a particular belief system about diet and health. But the broad principles aren't necessarily controversial. So at the macro level in the population, what's in the way of that coming into actual practice is a whole plethora of different environmental social and and economic circumstances you have areas that are known as food deserts where areas of low socioeconomic status may not have what to us would just be a supermarket down the road that has fruits and vegetables in it for for 40 minutes you have people then in that type of 
in that type of 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 social circumstance that perhaps don't have a car so if they are going to go to one of these you know types of 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 supermarkets where they could get fresh fruits and vegetables they have to get public transport to do it um and then you factor in perhaps that they may have two jobs that they're working um they may have multiple meds to feed they might be a single parent household working two jobs so now there's the lack of time and there may be a lack of food preparation skills so even if they know on paper fruits and vegetables are good for us well, how do they put that into actual practice in the absence of food preparation skills? And so we, we are starting to unravel this really complex web of different biological circumstances, predispositions that we have as, as a species, social, environmental, um, and, and economic circumstances that are this massive spider's web entangling together. And so to reduce it to, well, people know fruits and vegetables are good and they choose not to eat them or something like that as a narrative is, is really unpalatable. Um, and it's slightly more common in the States, I will say, that kind of narrative that will... You know, if people are, you know, poor, well, then, you know, they're, they're, they still can choose to eat fruits and vegetables. And it's like, no, it's not that simple. Yeah. Um, and so the more I started stepping back from all of this and realizing, so we, we talk about increases in chronic lifestyle disease, like it's really, like it's really difficult to un, unpick the cause. And it's like, no, the cause aspect is really simple. We're a biological species that spent most of its evolutionary period going through periods of fairly variable food availability. So mm. we are we are hardwired to resist reducing body mass and reducing and, and, and to be able to certainly to resist periods of low food availability, aka, you know, kind of energy deficit or even starvation. But as a consequence of that, we are also biologically predisposed to really protect against that being life-threatening in terms of the ability to over-consume energy and to put on energy reserves, aka adipose tissue. And we have had a relatively kind of from a human perspective, sick joke played on us for the past 50 years. We're playing off that evolutionary biology. We've had the creation of a food environment and foods within that environment and energy availability that has never been seen before. Mm. So when people talk about, oh my God, what causes you know increasing rates of obesity? That's the most uncomplicated part of it because we're biologically mm. designed to consume a lot of energy if it's available. And if it tastes delicious... Well, then we're biologically designed to, to even bypass satiety mechanisms, combinations of, you know, sweet, salty, umami, which is, you know, fat, sugar, fat, salt, basically. You put that into combinations of food. You make it available in the food supply so that there's a massive energy availability. You have fairly predictable consequences, but it's unpacking the drivers of that uh, that that's that's much more difficult and is almost like a political conversation so i think we need to kind of 
cool it a bit with the narrative about, oh, we just need to educate people better. That's not, that's not yeah. the case. And I also think we need to kind of step back a bit from kind of thinking about, oh, like, how did we get here? Was it sugar or was it whatever? And it's like, no, it was a wholesale alteration in an environment that plays off our evolutionary biology. So I have like a, I have a ton of questions I'm stacking up right here. But, um, all at once. Yeah. Um, but I won't say I'm all at once here, but just off of this uh, food environment yeah. um, aspect, could you, you have a really good, uh, I think it is a highlight on your uh, Instagram talking just about how um, the food availability has switched uh, greatly, especially for lower socioeconomic mm-hmm. uh, people um, from the 1900s to now. Could you just talk on that? Yeah. So I think we can learn a lot from, from, from history in, 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 in many respects. And one thing that I think is quite interesting is, you know, up until really the 1980s, the threat from a nutrition perspective for population health for lower socioeconomic sections of society was undernutrition, was malnutrition. And so up until food fortification policies came in in the 1920s, we could have seen epidemics of goiter, for example, associated with iodine deficiency. We could have seen epidemics of rickets where bones don't form properly in in children Mm -hmm. um scurvy and these things that were common in naval service and and generally when we look at food systems in that age in say up until around world war ii um we still had a lot of imperial systems globally that would have dominated their food systems Um, we still had quite a classist hierarchy in in society and generally, the net result, whenever there was issues in the food supply, was that poor people starved. And yeah. the consequence was always the threat of malnutrition or undernutrition. And we have completely flipped that on its head, where the threat now is constant and chronic overnutrition of hyper palatable and and high caloric value low nutrient value foods and what has been responsible for that is the shift in our economic models away from kind of previous like i said imperial monopolies and 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 more protectionist uh, approaches to trade to what we have now which is a fully deregulated international trade system that is based exclusively around kind of Western industrialized countries, the US, Australia, Europe, um, and, and certain like Japan, for example, certain countries in Asia that dominate a global market, dominate food systems and supply. And ultimately that food system and supply line is in service of an industry that is producing a homogenous diet on the back end and that's why if you look at the characteristics of a what they call the quote western diet you can look at someone's diet in detroit and compare it in terms of fat composition sugar content fiber level and all of that to someone in london to someone in sydney and it will be the exact same if they fall into a particular bracket 
Mm. And that's not a coincidence. So we've produced this homogenous diet where people play no role in the food supply. And so if you're, uh, if you're, like I said, previously 100 years ago, if you had a lack of resources available, you couldn't buy nutrient-dense foods. You had to subsist on basic uh, fare. You had to subsist on bread, for example, and, and sugar often. Added sugar was often just what kept people going. Sugar content of the diet in the late 1800s in the UK was way higher than it is now. And people mm. think sugar is a new thing. But actually, you fast forward to now, if you have very, very limited resources food-wise, then ultimately you have very narrow choice amongst the cheapest foods available, which also happen to be the ones that promote ill health at a population level. So your, your hands are tied to a degree, but it's the availability that has changed. Um, and that availability has very much been driven by market forces. Mm, that's, that's so interesting. And I think, um, do you have something you want to mm-hmm. uh, say? Um, an interesting thing to go to next, um, at least I'm hoping it's interesting, is to talk about kind of the a lot of the misconceptions in nutritional science and uh, mm-hmm. maybe our, like the, not lack of RCTs, but downfall of RCTs in nutrition and how yeah. it maybe helped uh, <laughs> RCTs, randomized controlled trial for, for everyone else, uh, but how those those um, tests helped people uh, get through things like the rickets and the scurvy and find out how we can fix those, but how nowadays that kind of fails us in some ways and leads to a lot of misconceptions. Yeah, so, so for context for listeners, when nutrition is still a young science and when it started emerging, the issues from a public health perspective were those issues like I mentioned, like goiter or rickets or pellagra, which was a, a vitamin B3 deficiency um, that was quite common in, in Europe and the States up until around the 1930s. Um, or you had beriberi in the Far East where people just essentially completely waste away in, in, in their kind of muscle function, which is a vitamin B1 deficiency. So at the time, people were studying foods because they noticed that actually if you fed people certain foods, those deficiency states disappeared. Mm. So scientific thinking would look at that and say, well, there's something in this food versus the other food. So with beriberi as as an easy example, they did studies in prisons where they would feed prisoners white rice, polished rice. So because it's been refined, the vitamin B1 content is gone and they 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 would increase their incidence of beriberi and then they would feed other prisoners whole grain rice. This was one of the worst, first, sorry, first, um, you know, controlled interventions in nutrition. And the, the prisoners eating whole grain rice didn't get beriberi. So it's like, okay, there's something in that food versus the other yeah. food. So at the time, it was very much trying to identify what those nutrients are. And there was this kind of renaissance period for nutrition science where a lot of these compounds were discovered in food. So they discovered iodine and how important it was. And so for goiter, they brought in a policy of fortifying salt with iodine. And that happened in the States in 1924 and in Europe around the same time. They started fortifying milk with vitamin D when they realized that it was a deficiency of vitamin D that caused rickets. We started fortifying wheat and grains with vitamin B3 to prevent pellagra deficiency. So you go and pick up any box of cereal now 
in the supermarket, you'll see it's fortified with niacin, which is vitamin B3. So these were really successful early years for nutrition as a field and resulted in significant improvements in population health as these diseases were eradicated. But these were diseases associated with single nutrient deficiencies. And the conditions that face us now are not associated with any single nutrient deficiency. They're conditions of chronic excess, primarily of energy, um, and then also other factors in the diet, like the composition of fats in the diet and the composition of carbohydrate in the diet, and potentially a role for the the composition of of dietary proteins, animal versus plant, but we'll we'll Mm -hmm. leave that for now. Um, But the point is that that lens became the way that people looked at nutrition and and in the 70s then we had the evolution of or the 60s and 70s of the biomedical model and that model very much evolved to test drugs and yeah. the randomized control trial design that we have now is what's known as an explanatory trial design and that's because you want to use this design to take the compound you're testing and be able to explain that it has a result and so in order to do that you take it and you test it against a placebo and you control for every other variable that you could account for so that you know that if you see an effect it's an effect of that agent that you're testing and that works really well if you're testing a drug if we want to test a drug to reduce blood pressure we take our subjects, we put them, some of them on the drugs, some on the placebo, and then we control things like salt in their diet. We control all these variables we know that will impact blood pressure and we, they, they can't drink caffeine and all this stuff. And then we look at the effect of this, of this drug. And that model works really well to test drugs, but drugs are single compounds and they're designed to have really specific effects on a specific target in someone's physiology, whether that's an enzyme or, or something. Mm. But foods aren't single compounds. Any one food, even though it looks simple, I mean, let's look at a blueberry. Okay, so we do, a te- we do a, an RCT uh, using blueberries, but blueberries have vitamin C. You know, they have other vitamins in smaller amounts. They have high levels of non-nutritive food components they have polyphenols and flavonoids and all these other compounds that have biological activities so you can never ever control for all of that and what it's meant is that we have led some kind of fairly silly conclusions in nutrition so an example that i always use when i'm asked about this is vitamin e okay so we in the biomedical model if an observation is observed in population research or otherwise it'll be tested in an rct and if it's true then it's upheld but if it's not true if the rct doesn't show a result then it's considered that the observation just occurs due to confounding so with vitamin e we've really strong population research that suggests it really benefits heart health and also protects against dementia so in the 90s everyone started going right let's do trials with vitamin e But they weren't feeding people high vitamin E rich foods, which is what the population based research was showing. They were isolating vitamin E as a supplement and vitamin E is eight different compounds all kind of together 
and they were just isolating one of those eight compounds and yeah. turning that into a supplement and doing all of these trials with heart disease and stuff as an endpoint and finding nothing. And the conclusion in the biomedical model then is vitamin E has no impact on heart health. That's not <laughs> the right. right conclusion because that's not the hypothesis they tested. What they, the hypothesis tested was a supplemental version of an isolated form of vitamin E doesn't benefit heart health. And so in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of commentators in nutrition science have been saying, well, hold on a minute. Everyone outside of nutrition thinks that this field is flaky, can't be trusted, has shaky results. And it's actually not a reflection of the field. It's a reflection of the fact that the biomedical model doesn't neatly sit with nutrition as a science. So mm -hmm. now people are doing more interventions where food is the exposure of interest, not an isolated supplement. Um, and we're starting to move away from these very strict biomedical rules of control in, in, in RCTs and do more pragmatic kind of trial designs. But yeah, there are limitations to how that model is applied. It doesn't mean that nutrition science is flaky. It does mean that it takes a degree of scrutiny to, to see through the forest for the trees. Yeah. And it, it reminds me so much of sports sciences too, and how much in the past, I guess, 10 years as well, there's been a convergence of what the scientists say and what the practitioners say, mm. and really starting to, to bring that together to say, well, okay, what's best practice considering there's stuff that we may not be able to test, but it's working when... Uh, the coaches use it, um, but maybe fails even in uh, literature. And also, like, what can the coaches also learn from literature and back and forth and how that's been like a really um, typically that wasn't what was occurring. But nowadays, that's much, there's much more back and forth between the two groups. Yeah, yeah. I think we need to remember that evidence based practice is a Venn diagram that includes mm -hmm. research, clinical experience and patient or client preference. Um, and we've been kind of hyper obsessed with the research part of it. And it's like, yes, you need to ground your practice in evidence, but it does not mean that your clinical experience is invalid. Um, and that's where that gap between research and application is bridged. Mm. And um, one question I had before Zach has something I know he wants to ask is you actually had a really great uh, Instagram story last night um, about someone asking the question, what do you say when if someone responds as well science just hasn't caught up yet mm. uh, to this to this idea that uh, someone may have what and if you could just go over that i thought what you said there was really really good yeah it was a question that came in and and i ended up addressing it because i i got two separate questions um i i don't know if you guys have listened to the joe rogan episode yet with gary taubes and stefan guillenay um no, I've, the only one I've listened to around nutrition was when Lane and um, I can't remember the guy's name, but the carnivore diet guy. Yeah, Sean Baker. Yeah. Well, yeah. Gary, Gary, Gary Taubes is one of the biggest clowns <laughs> in nutrition as a voice. Um, he's been beyond dogmatic. That whole quote we talked about earlier, Occam's Barber, hmm. he epitomizes that he is a liar and a fraud because he spreads opinions without knowing that they have no evidence and he spreads them as fact and mm. what i find hilarious in a, in a twist of irony is 
he founded an organization to fund nutrition research with the kind of inferred intent to, to prove that low carbohydrate diets did all this magical stuff like enhanced fat oxidation and blah 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 and and the person he ended up funding to do these really tightly controlled studies was a researcher called kevin hall who did two beautiful metabolic ward studies that completely disproved the hypothesis <laughs> Uh, so Gary Taubes then went uh, to a conference and, and just rubbished the lead author. Like it was disgusting behavior. Um, basically got up there and just said, you know, like, oh, he was just out to make a name for himself. And mm. and I got this question about, you know, how do you respond when someone says, well, well, we, we can't wait for the evidence or we're ahead of the evidence. And it really got me thinking about it um, because it's it's anti-science thinking. And you do hear a lot from the low-carb community. Um, you'll hear Jason Fung, for example, say, we understand the physiology, so the science will catch up with us. And it's like, I'm sorry, that is not the way the scientific process works. Yeah. So what I was explaining was that in science, there's a principle of, of falsifiability. It's been around for a while, and it basically says, if I have a theory... I propose that theory and I have to make predictions that would make that theory testable. And so that allows me or other people to come along and test my theory. And if any part of my theory falls, then the whole hypothesis falls because the whole theory itself has, has to have this degree of testability. So a hilarious example of this for listeners, if they're kind of thinking, where is he going with this? Go to Netflix to the documentary about flat earthers because they test their own theory and they do these beautiful experiments that are really well thought out that disprove that the world is flat. They dismiss their own results. So they do these, they, they, they make the prediction, the world is flat. They, they 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 put those predictions to tests and they do the tests themselves and the tests confirm the world is round <laughs> it's spherical uh, and then they just say nah <laughs> this is wrong <laughs> we're gonna do more tests you're not entitled to do that that is where we move from the realm of fact to the realm of occam's barber and i was explaining this principle because if you understand that as a fundamental principle of science, then if a hypothesis has been tested and one aspect to it has been shown not to be true, then the whole thing falls. Now, you can come up with a new hypothesis, sure, but that hypothesis has been disproven. And the point was that while while nothing is ever really proven in science, we could, what, 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 if something is accepted, it's accepted because we end up with multiple lines of evidence all showing the same thing or we end up with very consistent results in the same type of trial design we keep doing the same experiment we get the same result and it's like okay this seems to be the truth of things as we can know it at this point but one study can disprove a hypothesis so with the low carbohydrate um example the hypothesis is that if you lower carbohydrate intake you lower insulin levels. If you lower insulin levels, your body can burn more fat because insulin levels are low. And that was tested into excellent, very elegant metabolic ward studies. 
that disproved that. There was absolutely no difference in net fat oxidation on either a normal high-carbohydrate diet or a fully low-carb ketogenic diet. And critics of those studies, well, low-carbers, have come out and said those studies were too short. And my response to that is, by Mm -hmm. whose standards? Because the only way that 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 could be a valid criticism is if there's some evidence that it takes people, you know, eight weeks or 12 weeks to become keto adapted, as they say. But there's actually none. We know that people switch into a different fuel burning state quite quickly because we have to, because we what we burn reflects what we consume. So there's no evidence that it takes you a long period of time. So the studies were long enough to test the hypothesis that there is an advantage to lowering insulin, lowering carbohydrate intake which there wasn't. So that hypothesis has been falsified. And so to continue to advance a position in view of that fact is to fundamentally dismiss accumulated research and to to, to dismiss principles of, of science and how we test things and how we move on with the knowledge base. And it means that we can't move on we're having the same shitty conversations over and over in nutrition because people can't let go of their beliefs. Yeah. I remember, <clears throat> I think it was, um, Alan Aragon debated, uh, Gary, I, I don't know how long ago. Um, but, Oh, uh, I remember that. Yeah. That was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually straight up asked Gary, uh, would you ever change your mind, uh, depending on evidence? Uh, it was something to that extent. And Gary said, no, yeah, that he says that's right. <laughs> and and on the podcast there with with Joe Rogan, he basically said, "I don't read studies because you can find studies that prove anything you want." Uh, you know, and he's debating a legitimate academic who's a neuro researches the neurobiology of eating and obesity. And <laughs> this guy is, you know, a, a, a legitimate academic. And Gary Taubes is saying, "You know, I don't bother with research because I know what I know and I know it to be true." And it's like. This is that that thinking that is not just playing out in nutrition. We see it with the anti-vaxxer movement. We see it with climate change. We see it politically with Brexit and Trump. It's like these issues are not just in nutrition. You know, they are infesting a lot of areas of our lives at the minute. Um, we need to be we need to be mindful of it. Do you think, Alan, that you are reflecting on your tone and your style upon this this observation these reflections because you know to kind of branch off that greg knuckles had a probably reference greg every other podcast uh, <laughs> but, uh greg in response to the rogan podcast said something that can kind of leave you feeling deflated but i'd love to hear your response to what greg had to say did you happen to see his his facebook status on this no, I'm not on fit. Well, I just don't use it. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I, if we didn't have a business account, I, I think I would just log off entirely. But <laughs> Greg said, um, no matter how much, in, in response to the Joe Rogan show, no matter how much you want to think people still care about facts, logic, reason, etc., most people still value style over substance. Yeah. Russian is focusing almost exclusively on who came off as more likable with minimal focus on the actual evidence which speaks to entirely what you've just mentioned mm-hmm. so in you know in that same vein yeah and you just, I, I, you just, I, 
sneak into your couch? Like, come on, guys. Or, or are you thinking, how can I, uh, how can I uh, change my style? How can uh, fitness professionals improve their style? Like, what, what, what do we do about this? Yeah, it, 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 it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, I'm really thinking hard about, you know, what, what, yeah, what rhetoric do we adopt? What's, what style do we go for? Um, you know, Aristotle said that of the three forms of rhetoric, appeal to logic was always the weakest. If you wanted to win an argument, you went mm-hmm. with appeals to character and appeals to emotion. So I, I'm trying to think about how you can do that without compromising on the integrity of your information. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm certainly thinking about it in, in terms of the kind of battles that I find myself in over here, because in the UK, for example, now we have a lot of, of doctors, medical doctors who you think are trained in an evidence-based paradigm that are just being seduced by absolute woo nonsense nutrition ideas, but are not just kind of going you know, in their local circles with this, they're, they're writing books. They have massive reach. They're going on morning radio shows and morning TV shows and telling people that they can cure colorectal cancer with turmeric. And (laughs) this sounds like Ayurvedic nonsense and it's legitimate medical doctors that are, that are promoting this. And so I'm looking at them and I'm like, Okay, they're all like you know, handsome, marketable males who are, you know are 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 you know a, a press dream, but mm. this is a complete case of style over substance. No one's listening to what they're saying, and no one gives a shit. They're just like, oh my god, this cookbook's amazing! Can't wait to make your butternut squash soup. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> so so I'm incredibly frustrated by this because I'm looking at this and I realize that no one cares that their content is dangerous and misleading. They just love the person. And it's like, mm, yeah, I, I don't, it, it does make me want to shut down all public avenues of communication and retreat into academia and just ignore all <laughs> Yeah. And I understand people give out about, and I do sometimes give out about academics kind of not, you know, getting in the fray of science communication, but I get it. I get it why they just look at the public discourse and go, that is a clusterfuck I have no interest in. And they just walk away. So I, I feel his, I, I empathize with his, with his position. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, someone has to, has to fight that good fight. And I think, as you've mentioned, uh, this is the same rhetoric we see with, say, perhaps progress uh, amongst uh, different human rights. At the same time, you're getting kickback to yeah. human rights. So uh, you, it seems as though for every step you take forward, there might be something to push back on. I, I think if people like yourself retreated entirely and, and just kind of coming back to, to your field to nutrition exclusively like if people retreated into their textbooks who are in the science community and didn't you know join the fray I, I do think that would be to the larger detriment I do think that uh, and I agree it's and it's 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 it, it's what it's what keeps me there because you know I do think that if you can you must and um, I'm lucky that I have a unique enough background when it comes to certainly being in nutrition now. I'm lucky that that background is one where 
I've been able to develop kind of skills in terms of um, communication that maybe other people in academia don't have. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm lucky that I've been able to, you know, kind of be, yeah, be, be, be in a profession that, well, was very much focused on the spoken word and advocacy. And I've been able to, to refine that skill. And so I feel like with the background that I have and, and with it being relatively unique, if I wasn't using those skills in my new capacity, I'd be cheating myself as as well as potentially people that 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 I could get through to. Mm. So as much as it annoys me, I'm staying in the fray. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was just going to comment and say I think it always helps us to remember, on average, that things are trending upwards uh, a bit slowly. Uh, because a good example from nutrition is just 50 years ago, people were suffering from some of those. Um, uh, malnutrition uh, mm. as you were talking about and those are essentially gone nowadays which is a pretty great thing and and that is so important and I don't remind myself enough of that and I have a good friend of mine at home a, a colleague in, in law who um, you know is 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 very interested in, in, in philosophy and would always take that kind of approach that will actually if you step back from the issues that we have right now information um magnifies the negative effects but if you really step back from it you will see overall an increasing trend in progress and you will see increasing life expectancy lower rates of infant mortality um, vaccinations have been an incredibly successful intervention to eradicate certain communicable diseases and we won't contract in our lifetime tuberculosis or polio and and even now with communicable disease HIV was the fifth leading cause of mortality in 2007 it's not even in the top 10 anymore so we're making huge strides all the time and it's really important that we do remind ourselves of that. And I don't remind myself of that enough. Um, so, yeah, it's just we, we do have these 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 kind of issues in terms of, you know, wider kind of thinking and, and stuff and, and how it's playing out. And and it's not to say that everything then is rosy. It's you know, it's 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 a balancing act. We're always making strides forward. But. I think why these, this conversation we're having is important is because we don't want those strides to be undone and there is potential for them to be undone, you know, if we continue down that, that kind of very post-truth, anti-intellectual rejection of facts type of world. So uh, my, my next question kind of tries to bring around what you were saying with the challenges to what people might perceive as being just this, this misinformed, misunderstood, this, this uh, I hate to say it because it's just, I, morally, like you said, it's, it's so, uh, so wrong, but this, this stupid idea um, that people do know what's quote unquote healthy for them, what would constitute a, a, a at least I, we could say a diet that might be better mm. than, uh, or a healthy diet from perhaps a less healthy diet. But is there anything, and I don't even want to get into because this is perhaps more policy, though I'm, I know you like to talk about it and, and 
discuss these ideas because I don't know how uh, to approach this from say like addressing nutrition in poverty stricken areas of the world. But you know, in, in, in let's just say Western countries where, mm-hmm. where our listeners might be tuning in from, which I think is a problem in and of itself too, at least from getting this type of content out. But, you know, if gyms are having paleo challenges, macro challenges, they're, they're making efforts to, to do the right thing, but perhaps are, are, are missing the forest through the trees. And mm-hmm. could, could fitness professionals be doing things differently or better to address some of the obstacles or misconceptions that you mentioned um, simply because the, the, the want to do well, I hope is there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but perhaps again, like I said, is there any way to better redirect it to maybe help your community more effectively or to um, take macro challenges and make them a little bit yeah. I think I think there's I think it's a great question. I think there's a couple of levels to it. Um the first thing I think we need to probably do in the fitness community mm-hmm. is move to a place of being more weight inclusive. Um so the fitness community is obviously pretty much built on in many respects aesthetics um and shreds and 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 it's it's always assumed that there is almost a kind of moral superiority to people that can get into a, you know an incredibly low level of body fat while maintaining massive amounts of muscle mass and it's like that's not realistic for 99% of people and i think we need to stop being polarizing and creating barriers to people uh, at higher body weights from engaging in fitness and most commercial gyms are fairly horrible environments for anybody that doesn't fit the aesthetic ideal um so that's one thing um i think the second thing we could do is on the polarizing front probably stop polarizing diet so much like the whole the information I've seen come out of CrossFit and F45 about nutrition is just absolutely Mm -hmm. awful. And we need to stop creating more barriers for people. Like most people don't need to macro count. If they're in the gym four times a week, that's ample opportunity to teach some basic principles. Um, these are probably also people, if they can afford a CrossFit or S45 membership, F45 membership, that probably have access to, to better food quality. Mm-hmm. And they're the last people that we need to start hanging up food rules on. <laughs> and so for me, I think we need to stop pushing kind of more fad approaches to nutrition or very restrictive approaches to nutrition onto people. Um And then in terms of helping the community, that's more nuanced. I mean, as an example, I was at an event last year, which was hosted by chefs, um, some of whom were doing some great community work. So as an example of that, one one chef had a program on Sundays in a fairly socially deprived area of London where he would take families into a kind of um, a community center kitchen and they made a 
meal for four from scratch with like, you know, ingredients you could find in a, in a, a kind of local just store for three pounds. So every week the meal cost three to four pounds and mm. fed four people. Like they're the kind of things we, we can help people with. Now, obviously that's, that's going like, this is different because this person was a professional chef. So what I'm saying is could, could we extend out into local communities and perhaps make fitness a bit more or just increasing physical activity a, a bit more accessible? So one of the big barriers to activity in this, in, 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 in a lot of countries now in lower socioeconomic areas is simply safe recreation. Um, so could 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 gyms across the country do something where they make um, memberships accessible for people in a certain wage bracket? Maybe could they perhaps put on cooking, you know, demonstrations or or classes where they actually teach people to make a meal from scratch? Maybe like these are all kind of community based initiatives that that could be helpful. Um, and it, I guess it just depends, but I do think that we need to, and if we're in this space and we're, we're, we're in the kind of fitness space and, you know, we're lucky that we're able to take care of our bodies, be healthy, eat good food to support those endeavors. We have to acknowledge our privilege in, in being able to do that. Mm-hmm. And we have to then not be guilty about that, but acknowledge that we do have the privilege to do that and that not everyone does. And then start having a conversation about how might we be mindful of that and how might we potentially help to break down some barriers to improving health via physical activity or, or, or just better access to, to food. Um, so I think they are questions that people can maybe think about in their own space. If they do own a gym or, or, you know, own a CrossFit box, it's like, yeah, how, how do you extend out into the community um, and, and make improving health accessible for people? And it's not just about, you know, the, 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 the 10 bros eating paleo and swinging out doing kipping pull-ups on the bars like it's got to be a little bit more than that I think if we are going to be serious about helping people who need help yeah and I think the the gyms could at least be a, a good starting place right at the, the you know yeah. garner some trust um, at least for an hour a day people are moving um, but, it, and, and so as not to Alan, take too much of your time, we might be kind of wrapping it up here, but, you know, for those who can't afford the gym membership mm. or, or those who are challenged by the 40 minute commute and would otherwise have to take a bus, um, are there, or do you know of policies that are trying to be pushed through? To help these people, do you know uh, or have thought? I'm sure you have. Uh, ways that communities could be helped more effectively because you know you you have this, um, of course, issue as you mentioned of these uh, these issues rooted largely in our biology, access to uh, a large amount of uh, uh, you know, high calorie dense foods that we will 
eat in, uh, in excess, uh, again, that too would be rooted in our biology. But at the same uh, time, you have the, the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I, I mean, this is such a loaded question, probably the worst to end a podcast on. <laughs> but, well, maybe like what, kind of what, where has your headspace been around, around the uh, dynamic that exists? Yeah. Being hungry and overfed, and, and you have to answer this in thirty and seconds. You have thirty seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the more that I've looked at the research in this area, um, the more I'm convinced that when, when you really do look at the research, the one thing that that does come off the page is that to, to help people in those circumstances the most, we need to actually look at the level of policy and regulation. So. There was, you know, surveys done a couple of years ago in the European Union looking at, you know, mandatory regulation. That's probably one way we need to go. We need to probably use the analogy of smoking and we need to look at big tobacco and treat, I guess, big food in the same way. Um, If we accept that these issues are the issues they are, the logical analogy is smoking. Um, And there were steps taken to control people's you know or or the emissions so to speak in the form of producing cigarettes that were impacting population health i think we need to look upstream i think we need to look at reformulating foods to lower their caloric content sugar content fat content um i think we need to have much stricter laws on marketing it's a completely one-sided game plan at the minute people are bombarded with stimuli to eat get into the golden arches you know you've got got some interesting research now where you've got a lot of food companies have tried to circumvent some laws um, that have been brought in some marketing regulations so you'll see mcdonald's will advertise a salad right on a bus stop but like no one goes into the golden arches and orders that salad. So the advertising has the same effect. It gets people in the door and then they order the Big Mac meal. So we need to really look at modifying the environment. We can't expect people to take personal responsibility for themselves if we're not tipping the scales in their favor by modifying the environment. And I think we have to look upstream at the level of policy and regulation, if we're really going to help people downstream. You know, it, that you saying that really made me one think about um, something you said earlier in the podcast around how in the States, um, I can't remember exactly what you were speaking on, but you mentioned how maybe in America uh, it, it's more prevalent and it made me think about yeah. uh, because we're more of an individualistic society. Yes. Uh, and, and that's maybe where that comes from. And then you talking more about policy and kind of the personal responsibility made me think a lot about behavioral economics and mm-hmm. how irrational people are um, and how we all, we think that it comes down to just we're, we're always making the choice. We're very aware of the choice we're making, um, but how with a lot of that research, we see how much environment plays and how much subtle kind of like images or cues or nu- yeah, nudges, um, the book nudges can really push us one way and we have no idea that it's happening. Uh, Exactly. I I think behavioral economics has a huge amount to, to do and to play. Um, But interestingly, the, the author of the book nudge is a university of Chicago law professor called Cass Sunstein. Mm. And he was, 
quite involved in Obama's administration um, in terms of um, various nudging policies that were that were brought in. And I had the pleasure of seeing him speak at one of the universities in, in Dublin. And I, I asked him this specific question in relation to the food environment. And I said, you know, is it time, you know, that we go from mandatory regulation and when I was alluding to that, like kind of when I said, you know, it's a very American perspective, perhaps I'll, I'll link it back to that because his response was ultimately, well, if people are going to eat Burger King, they're going to eat Burger King. The free market still decides and we should we should have minimal intervention. And in America, you have quite quite specific political views on mm-hmm. the role of government, the role of taxation, um, the responsibility of the individual and I made a lot of these points on the Barbell Medicine podcast a few weeks ago. I was just about to bring this up. <laughs> some, of the, some, some, of the, some of the comments underneath were just brilliant. I mean, it was just like, I am a communist. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I was actually going to bring that up that uh, you were saying, like, you were just on that podcast and I saw that you posted the comment with someone's like, I came yeah. to this smart guy and he's just some liberal bullshit person. Liberal bullshit. It's like... You know, that's the problem with the politicization of facts. The, the point yeah. I'm communicating here come from research. They're, they're facts that I'm communicating that sound like a liberal spin, but actually they're just the facts. It's it's the perception of them that gives it a, a, a political kind of appeal. But we have evidence of success for sugar taxes in certain jurisdictions. We've evidence for success for reformulation. It's been really successful with salt contributing to reduced risk of heart disease we have re, re good evidence of success for smoking and the legislation that came in for smoking so why would we treat food any differently to all of these other seat belts are another completely unheralded example you know in the 1940s people fucking died all the time in cars and you try to bring in seat belts and everyone throws their arms up and says, nanny state, government, get out of my life. And it's like, well, fast forward to now and how many less road deaths are there because of seatbelts, right? So yeah. all of the time we're constantly trying to improve human health. And sometimes you just have to do that further upstream. And what I find interesting about people who say, oh, I don't want the government ever, you know, getting involved in regular, and it's like, the people who are the loudest critics of this approach are the people who will notice this the least, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not going to notice this because they're not the ones at a bus stop staring at a McDonald's. Um, You know, they're the ones that have the awareness and means and ability to kind of eat better. So, so this is, this is about, you know, helping sections of society that can't help themselves. And if they can't help themselves, then we have a moral obligation as a society. If we in any way think that, that you know, society matters as a whole, then I think we have a moral obligation to accept that these facts will result in certain potential interventions they, they shouldn't be, they are political, I accept that, but we shouldn't be viewing them as left, right, or anything else. We should just be viewing them as the evidence that supports a way to go to help reduce chronic lifestyle disease. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so many uh, wonderful considerations brought around. I know a very complex topic. Uh, Alan, moving forward for you, always a little bit further, what can people expect out of you what 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 is next i'm sure that it's hard to see past 
the PhD right now and, and the time and effort and energy therein. But ha- have you thought about what's next for you? As I'm sure all of these thoughts are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so the, the the next thing I guess that's immediate on the horizon is I've been I've been working quietly kind of since about last November on a website um which I kind of sat back for a while and, and looked at the space and was like where where could I add value where could I um do something of of of, of value for the space and so I've got a website coming out that is you know very dedicated to clear and and critical and objective thinking about nutrition science um and then communicating that through video style lectures, which I hope are kind of a good time saver for busy practitioners. So 15, 20 minute videos on an overarching topic like, you know, fat and heart disease or the microbiome or something like that with, with the, the research and, 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 the, and the references in the videos. Um, and then also doing study critiques uh, of particular studies. So like a research review format, but slightly different to the way a lot of research reviews are done in the sense that I'm doing it weekly as opposed to monthly, because I want people to have the opportunity to take what I I want people to get better with research. So I want that to be one of the, the goals of it. And rather than just bombard you monthly with, here's a bunch of fucking studies that have broken down where you don't really learn, you just end up reading through it and getting their perspective. I actually want to really focus on educating people about research and different trial designs and what is a hazard ratio and this kind of thing. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I think it's quite representative of, of my kind of voice in the space and I'm really looking forward. It'll be about a week um, and I'm really looking forward to bringing that out and that'll be my side hustle, I guess, while I do the PhD and then in that process, it's really just about carrying on with the the research that we're doing, looking at the impact of circadian rhythms on metabolism. And, and I hope to flesh that out, uh, applying for a couple of more grants with, um, with some other research kind of in that space as well. And perhaps looking at the effects of protein feeding during the night as a strategy for shift workers. That's, that's one of the, the projects that I want to pitch and hopefully get some funding for. Well, we, well, when you have more on it, well, we'll definitely have to have you back on. It, it, it's been a pleasure, Alan. And where might people find you? And, and if the the link is known or what that link will be, perhaps, and I'm sure just tuning into your social accounts, they'll be yeah. where they are. Where, where can people uh, stay up to date? So on Instagram, at the nutritional underscore advocate. Um, and like you said, yeah, the best way to... Uh, get the link when it goes live is is to just follow me over in that space it's the only social media space i occupy for mental health reasons <laughs> so i keep it i keep it small but i do put a lot of effort into good science communication through that medium so people will find me there and they'll they'll know when the site goes live then wonderful we'll, we'll link that all below alan and, and we'll also let you get on with your day thanks so much for your time Thanks for having me, guys. It's really been a pleasure. I really enjoyed that conversation. Awesome. Well, have a good one.